Hello, and welcome to another episode of Block Talk, presented by Theatre in the Now. I'm your host as always, Michael Block. Before we begin, a few quick reminders. Never miss an episode of Block Talk by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. And visit us at patreon.com slash theaterinthenow to become a patron of the website. By becoming a patron, you'll receive some incredible perks, including ticket discounts. And as always, follow us on Twitter and visit theaterinthenow.com for the latest news, reviews, and interviews. Today is a special edition of Block Talk. It's Block on Block Talk. I'm here with Tom Block. How are you? I'm great. Thank you, Michael. Um, I, from my knowledge, I don't think there's any relation. But I'm I, sure like, if there's genealogy, there's something way down deep. Talk to the Mormons, man. I don't have that information. No. They do. Um, so we are here to talk about the International Human Rights Arts Festival coming up next weekend. Um, at Dixon Place. That's correct. Uh, we're going to be 50 different events over the weekend, uh, more than 150 artist participants, um, and all of the work will be advocacy-based, very high-quality, strong, aesthetically beautiful art. Wonderful. Well, we'll get into that very shortly, but let's learn a little bit about you first. Sure. Uh, so where are you originally from? I was born in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., in Bethesda, Maryland. And how did you get into the arts? Because you have a lot of artistic background. I do have quite a bit. Um, I can say, honestly, I kind of fell into the arts. I uh, went through college and got a degree in English, and I was doing some journalism work. Uh, started doing some photography with my journalism, and then really enjoyed the visual, so I took a course at uh, the place called the Boston Museum School in Boston, which is a great art school. And during that early time, I just happened to go into a, an introduction to the visual arts in terms of drawing, sculpture, and I immediately fell in love with it. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. That's it. That's wonderful. And what brought you to New York? The mecca of art. I mean, you know, this is the place to be. I, um, I really have only been here about four years. So I originally came, I, originally, I told myself when I got out of art school, and I was about uh, 28 or 29. I said, I'm not going to go to New York until I'm invited. And it took 20 years for that invitation to come. Sure. But I did get in, have a play accepted at a theater called Theater for the New City, a uh, yep. full run. Um, and then I said, okay, that's it. That's my invitation. They, I don't know if New York saw it that way, but I did. So since that time, that was in early summer of 2013, I have been working almost in, exclusively in New York. And how was that experience for you? Ah, uh, brutal. Yeah. New York art world, if you're not prepared, will step on your throat and stand there for yes, a while. So, it will. <laughs> so uh, it was brutal, but in the brutality, I found a tremendous amount of passion, uh, excitement, and possibilities. So I said, I'm going to stick with this thing. It's wonderful. So let, let's talk about the International Human Rights Arts Festival. Um, you gave us a little, a bit of a rundown, but what inspired you to create it? Well, I have been doing activist uh, artwork since the uh, 2000, well, 1998, let's say, was my first project. Uh, when I really wanted to take art out of the galleries, I was a visual artist for many years, um, take art out of the galleries and into the more uh, recognized social milieu. So I developed a bunch of uh, different projects. Uh, one of them was a human rights painting project with Amnesty International, uh, painting a series of human rights defenders and then using it to... Uh, exhibit their stories. Um, and I found after working alone that there was a lot of energy out there and that I was curious to see what would happen in terms of energy. We brought it all together. 
So I produced a festival in 2010, actually, the Amnesty International Human Rights Art Festival. Um, and it was the same idea, but much bigger. I didn't, I, I got my, my uh, what was it, my, my eyes were too big for my stomach, if you sure, will. Sure, sure. Um, so then I let that, I did, we did it, and we had a lot of great artists and a great events, but we didn't have a lot of audience or press or, or really interest from the community. It was done outside of Washington, D.C. But then when I got up here and I got to know Ellie at Dixon Place, I saw her audience, saw her heart, her soul, and I thought, wow, this would be the perfect venue. It's just the right size. It's good. They have an audience already. Uh, the energy here is right. People love Dixon Place. And you're taking over the entire place. It's all mine. It's yeah. wonderful. Yeah. So, um, yeah, 50 events. We just I just met with Ellie today, and we're still, you know, she's kind of like, really? You need this time? You need that hour? I said, Ellie, <laughs> I need it all, man. Uh, so let's talk about some of the events. What are some of the highlights that we can expect? Well, the opening ceremonies is very exciting because that is really where we um, we explore the whole model. And the model is about engagement. So we sure. have um, honorary co-sponsors from across the political spectrum. We have uh, Democratic senators, Republican senators. We have activists, um, Congress people. It's really about engaging rather than opposing. So at the opening ceremonies, you're going to see art, you're going to see politicians, you're going to see really important activists. Uh, Wei Jing Sheng is coming up. He's a Chinese democracy activist. He was 18 mm -hmm. years in jail uh, in China before being released. I mean, really did it. Um, and we're also going to be looking at during the open cer opening ceremonies the way in which art has touched these people who are not artists, who are activists, sure. or even who are politicians. Um, and it's important to see that nexus. And then in terms of individual events, I mean, I, you know, to pick among your children, Michael. Sure. You really want me to do that? If you really want me to well, do it, I'll throw about, a few out. How about we uh, talk about what you're presenting? There you go. I don't, that, that sounds even worse, right? Okay. Well, I'm making you talk about that one. I'll, I'll throw a few out. Okay, so I have my... Um, Paintings from my human rights painting project are on view in the lounge. And then a play I wrote about what getting involved with uh, the American security apparatus does to an individual. So it's really a psychosocial look at one individual's psychology as he kind of breaks down. I mean, he's, he's, he wins a medal from the government, but in, his interior experience is the opposite of that. So that's, that's my work. Um, but there are a great... I'll mention a few. Uh, we have Ari Gold, who was um, pretty well known around town as the first uh, gay American pop star. He's performing his piece, Pop Out, which is uh, his autobiographical piece, sort of his journey from being uh, raised as an Orthodox Jew and then being a, a child, kind of a child voiceover star mm -hmm. to where he is today. It's a very interesting view. But, you know, in, in light of us really taking a 360-degree look, Ari at the opening ceremonies will be reading an open letter to Ivanka Trump. Oh, wonderful. Um, Ari was at Passover last year at Mar-a-Lago, and Ivanka Trump, knowing the Golds, knowing Ari and his family mm -hmm. who were all there, knowing that they were very devout Orthodox Jews, asked if her and her family, you know, she's an Orthodox Jew, right. could sit with Ari. So Ari sat with her, and it was very pleasant. They didn't talk politics. And then this whole election season sure, unfolded. And so he wrote her an open letter and had it published in the Huffington Post, saying... Kind of, we met, we talked, we were, you know, it, you know, I'm here, I'm a person. So I've asked him uh, to read a few, you know, to read three minutes of that open That's letter. Wonderful. Yeah. So as part of, you know, so we're kind of looking at the whole package, not just Ari the artist, but Ari the person, Ari the activist, and that will take place with a lot of our uh, our artists. So that's one example. I mean, it's great. Yeah. 
I feel like timing is everything. And it's unfortunate what's going on in the world now. It is. But why is this festival important now? Well, that's so interesting. We started planning this a year ago. Right. I mean, no one saw this coming down the right. pike. We so all, it wasn't planned. It wasn't, I'm not a pro, you know, prescient. I didn't plan this in advance of what's going to happen. But I will say this. In, in good times, which you could argue for the past eight years have been good sure. enough, um, art is wonderful. It's a, it's a diversion. It's an entertainment. It takes you out of yourself. You take a break on a Saturday. In stressful and difficult social times, art really becomes an, a necessity. And so this has gone from being a really important and exciting awareness-raising event uh, to a necessary event. And, and I'll just tell one story that really highlights that necessity for me. Uh, we have Wei Shang, I mentioned mm-hmm. him, who was 18 years in China in jail, um, is coming out, traveling to the festival and speaking. When I first met him in 2002, I did some paintings of him. And I got in touch with him, uh, and he came out to my studio. And at that time, I had no, no profile. It was the very beginning of my activist career. So I kind of said, you know, with all due respect to me, why are you here? Sure. You know, why would you come out? And he said, look, when I was going through my trial, he was um, jailed for promoting democracy on something called the Democracy Wall Movement okay. in China in the 1970s. He said, when I was going through my trial, and then I was in jail, and I was in solitary confinement, Year after year, the only people that stood with me were the artists. And so, I mean, from that moment on, I thought, if art can mean that kind of thing to this man who's willing to sacrifice everything for an ideal, then this art is meaningful. It really does have meaning. So in that respect, I feel strongly, and we'll hear others. uh, We have a a video from Senator Schumer. sent us along a video. And he, it's quite interesting because... For much of the video, he's reading a script, and it looks like he's uh, fulfilling an obligation. But at some point, he talks about his own experience in college with activist art, specifically Bob Dylan, and his whole demeanor changes. He engages, he stops reading, he gets passionate. And again, it's a situation where you understand that art can really touch someone. Absolutely. And it's clear from his demeanor, because you can see before he's just fulfilling an obligation, you know, whatever. But in that moment, he engages... And these kind of things point out that there is a real power to art. And I think that's what we're going to be looking at in the festival. How do you find that specific power and then often positive? It's never, I went to a, a, you know, a protest and people got beaten up and it changed my life. It's usually a positive. We're a very positive-oriented festival. I curate for uh, sincerity and sure. passion, um, beauty. So uh, those are a couple examples of how I think this, this art can move beyond being entertainment and really move into the realm of social engagement, a serious social engagement, social change. So beyond the festival, how can other artists become art activists and create their own work and share their work? In general? or Sure. Well, um, I'll say, I, I'll give myself a plug. I am teaching a course in activist art starting uh, the Tuesday after the festival. I teach it at Dixon Place, which specifically looks at Absolutely. how to change a, um, an idea and going through very specific steps into a finished activist project. And how can we? Uh, how can the listeners learn more about this class? Um, if they go onto the uh, Human Rights Art Festival uh, website, Dixon, DixonPlace.org, and then click on the Human Rights Art Festival, and then right at the top there's a link that says, you know, to find out more about the classes. So I'm teaching one at Abrams and one at Dixon. But these look quite specifically at how to 
build an activist project. Awesome. Yeah. So I've uh, taught it a couple semesters. This will be my third semester. That's incredible. Year. Yeah. I'm ass- I'm assuming that this is not going to be the last time this festival exists, and it shouldn't be the last time. I totally what know. what where do you see it expanding to? Well. So much of that depends on... I mean, there's really there's various pillars. There's, there's the artists. They were in place early. We sure. have a strong, strong collection of artists. There's the um, funding, which, you know, we, can, we, hope we got some, and we're hoping that we can make up the rest uh, in, um, in the ticket sales. And then the third is volunteers. And we've had a tremendous outpouring. I mean, we have 50 volunteers. We're over subscribed. And then the fourth is audience. So these are the four pillars of a successful mm-hmm. festival. So, um, and press. You could say what kind of energy and are we, are we right. generating in the press. Uh, the press energy has been fairly strong. I mean, uh, other than, you know, the New York Times and CNN, we've really <laughs> hit a lot of notes, and that's great. So right now, it, a lot of my interest in, in continuing will be audience if we if i'm sitting there saturday with five people in the theater i'm gonna think twice about going sure. to bed. if we get a strong audience and given the the interest and support so far i'll sit down with my assistant producer uh, julia levine who's been amazing amazing uh help um and we'll you know we'll sit down in the next week or two and say okay and with ellie at, at dixon and then say what what's this what does this mean Sure. So I would hope it is, but I would not say it's guaranteed, but I'd say the early returns are good. But let's remember, Michael, we were confident about the election. So let's Absolutely. just let's wait till those well, final spe- returns speaking come Speaking of in. which, you said uh, that a lot of it was curated. Has any of the material or the art changed since the outcome of the election? Um, I commissioned about a half dozen works. Uh, we have four commissioned, uh, five commissioned dances. Um, we have some commissioned spoken word pieces, well, maybe about 10 different works or something. I don't know uh, if those were um, specifically, the, most of the work was created prior to the election. Sure. I am very, I try to stay away from specific references to politics because I feel politics actually represents energy. Mm-hmm. And that what Donald Trump represents is not an individual, he represents an energy that lies latent in our society of fear, of small-mindedness, of anger, and that energy's there. Right. So he's representative of that. So I want artists to deal with the energy and not just have three lines thrown in about the current, sure, which sure. I've seen. I've seen that recently in New York where someone back wrote three lines about Donald Trump into a play. You know, okay, ha-ha. You know, but I, that's not... I want to deal with these underlying energies. Right, absolutely. Um, what inspires you as an artist? Wow. Well, I have no choice. All, all I know how to do is create stuff. So, I mean, it's sort of beyond. I, it's, I had this question once. I was at a talk at the Corcoran Museum. People were talking about the inspirations. I just said desperation. I mean, it's a, a desperation to create. And actually, I have a play coming up at IRT um, March, opening March 23rd called Sub Basement. And there's a line that one of the characters says. She goes to kind of a guru type character who's no guru at all. But she says, what is it in, this, you know, in society that people feel this need, even desperation, to create? And his response is, could be a social illness, like anxiety mm-hmm. disorder, you know. So that's kind of how I look at myself, sure. an anxiety disorder expressed through creativity. And do you find yourself mixing medias and um, different styles of art in your work? In my work, absolutely. Uh, I love, um, I'm working with a dancer right now on some dance projects. I, my uh, Theater pieces always have my own paintings involved. Oh, wonderful. 
I love to work with live music. I've worked with uh, cellists on some of my projects. So I think um, to approach the emotions, a lot of different, if it works. I mean, again, I'm a big fan of successful art. I and mean, if it doesn't work, it's gone. Sure. But um, yeah, I, I love working across media and with other uh, creative voices. How do you stay artistically active? I, ha- I have no choice. If I'm not artistically active for two straight days, I will fall apart emotionally. That's great. Yeah, it's literally a desperation. Way. Yeah. I always have to be writing something or typing something or thinking or seeing. Something's got to come out of exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah. Do you have any dream collaborators? Uh, you know, I've just met a, a dancer, I won't even mention her name, uh, who is a... Um, sort of is a dream collaborator and I don't know it's very early in our we're kind of still finding out because I'm not a dancer she's a dancer and I want to do choreographic work if uh, her and I are able to work together and she's able to translate my narratives into dance and I can translate her dance into narratives that's probably would be it if you mean an individual it's so much about the relationship that I can't point out and say gee I wish Michael Jackson would alive we'd be great together but it's, it's about a relationship and about a a simpatico that's beyond words in terms of uh, the way you connect artistically. And so, you know, talk to me in a year and I'll tell you if that one worked out or not. We just, we've been in the rehearsal studio twice. It was really exciting, but who's to say how long these things go on? Absolutely. What has been the most memorable moment in your career? All right. Here's the most memorable. You said that this is what came to mind. I was, <laughs> um, I wrote a book, actually an academic book, on the influence of Islamic mysticism on Jewish mysticism. Okay. Pretty close look about how a lot of what is considered Jewish mysticism actually comes through Islamic contacts in the Middle East in, in medieval times. Obviously, there was a very strong political and social component. Because of this work, I got invited to a conference at Al Azhar University in Cairo. It was their first and probably last interfaith conference, and there were two Jews there, mm-hmm. of which I was one. I was the one of the two Jews. And it, there was a level of intensity to the experience. But the, high, the low point or high point was I was sitting in the audience and one, people would go up and, and give their talks. And, and again, there was 90% of them were Muslim talks sure. and 8% were Christian talks and there was me and the other Jewish guy. So this Thai guy got up and he started talking about how Jews had infiltrated the Rotary Club in Thailand and Jews were doing everything they could to ruin Thai society and Jews this and Jews that. And I, it was interesting. There was, there was, he was the first and there were two other people speaking. And after he spoke, I was like in shock. And I went up to my room. They had me like on the 33rd floor of this, this uh, hotel overlooking the Nile. And I'm looking down and saying, that is where Moses <laughs> was found. Right. Right beneath me. What is my obligation as a Jew? And I went back down and I ra- they had a question and answer. I raised my hand and I said, um, they came over the camera and you know there's like 500 people in the room. And I said, you know, look, you, you invited me here as one of the two Jewish participants and I've come here out of respect for Islam, for respect for the gifts Islam has brought to the Jewish people, which I talked about yesterday. I said, you cannot ask me to be respectful and then allow that kind of that kind of dialogue to take place at what is supposedly an interfaith, an interfaith con- uh, conference. I said, that is unacceptable. I was like shaking and everything. Yeah. Um, and then the guy, the Thai guy who had given the speech said, maybe I shouldn't have said that here today. <laughs> <laughs> I'll save that for my friends. It was really funny. That was all he said. <laughs> nice. Well, that's a great moment. That's it was a- pretty intense. Yeah, it was wonderful. 
Where's your favorite New York City workspace? I love them all. I love New York City. I mean, look, I do a lot of work at Dixon. I love walking into Dixon Place. So, uh, I mean, I teach classes in the lounge in the middle of the day. And, you know, you go in, it's kind of dark in there. And it, it lights are usually off. And I turn them on. It's a little musty. And it kind of feels like a living room. And sit around with six or eight mm-hmm. uh, students. I, I think that's probably my favorite moment in New York right now. It's great. What is your New York City tourist attraction that is a must-see for people when they come to New York? Visit Hasidim Tours. Okay. There is a woman named Frida who, I don't know, you've heard this, there's this book called Unorthodox about a woman that left the Orthodox community okay. by Deborah, her name was Deborah Feldman, I think. Frida had the same experience. She was brought up in the Hasidic community, uh, you know, the one we know down there in um, Williamsburg. And then she had this voyage of discovery to herself and kind of had to leave it. And then she goes back and takes people on tours through Hasidic Williamsburg, but giving an insider's perspective, having grown up in it, and then also very honestly talking about her own experiences of growing beyond it and what she had to leave behind. And it's intense and fascinating and bizarre and wonderful. So that would be the one. Sure, Empire State Building, you want to pay 40 (laughs) bucks, go. I don't care. You You can take a picture. (laughs) Exactly. Below it, it's fine. Uh, So we're going to move into something that I call the Pop 5 Rapid Fire. So I'm going to give you... Five pop culture things. Glad they can't see my face. <laughs> and you're just going to, it's like the first thing that comes to mind. Really, this you... not, might not be pretty. I'm not a huge fan That's of pop right. culture. Well, it's 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 mm. things that are topical more than pop culture. If it's J-Lo, I'll just be like, I don't know. <laughs> well, the first one, number one, is Fox News. I used to love Fox News. I don't love them anymore. Fair. Number two is Alternative Facts. Alternative facts. Uh, I'm not sure what a real fact is. <laughs> I, I'm not either anymore. Number three, La La Land. Uh, my daughter's nickname is La La. Okay, have you seen the movie? No, but I've actually... People that have seen it said it was fairly mediocre, but I have not seen it. But I, you... my artist friends who have gone to see it, I, I do not like going to movies. I'm not a movie person either. And, you know, I can get an off-Broadway off, off ticket for nine bucks, and I might know people in it, and I find there's a veracity and a and a passion that i do not see in a movie That's, so i go I, I like that you'll find me in the crane my friend yes the crane <laughs> i was there last night there you go exactly uh number four is the mta i love it except today when it got me here late <laughs> i mean i i don't get the mta anymore well i mean they're moving a lot of people I, i'm gonna cut them some slack but yes you can be sitting there cursing which i was doing an hour ago so but i mean I, for me it's a, it's at the point of like do I need the Wi-Fi at the station, or do I need better service? Well, yeah, exactly. I think I want the better service. Most of us have data now, anyway. Exactly. So. And our last one is Soul Cycle. I don't know what that is. It's the um, workout places where you ride the bikes. Oh, uh, I go to Blink. Fair. <laughs> so what we do on the podcast is I have the previous guest ask uh, the next guest a question. So this is a question from Ryan Farnsworth. Oh, and he's going to uh, be on jury duty soon. <laughs> yes, he will. Um, <laughs> I heard his, about that. His mail just came to my apartment. Um, anyway, his question to you is, if you found the genie's magic lamp, what are your three wishes, and it can't include more wishes? Um, I will answer this with a Sufi story. Okay. There was a Sufi uh, elder who was approaching death, and, and, and what you do in Sufism as an elder, you, you pick your the heritor of your lineage is a very specific way of teaching Sufi or Islamic mysticism. 
So he gathered three of his best disciples with him. And he said, you know, I'm about to leave. Tell me if you could do whatever you wanted, if you had, in his case, one wish, one, three, what would you do, you know, to make the world a better place? And the first guy said, um, you know, I would make everybody live by the given law. I would make it a completely Islamic religious world and we would all be in beautiful harmony. And and, uh, the guy said, the... uh, the teacher said, well, that's, that's pretty good. How about you, number two? And then he said, well, you know, I see so much poverty and sadness. I would make sure everybody had enough to eat. Tzedakah would become the most important thing. We would, you know, give food and water to everybody and shelter and housing. I said, wow, that's, that's pretty good, too. How about you, number third? And he kind of thought for a second. He said, you know, I would leave everything exactly the way it is. Because if God didn't want it to be like this, he could change it. Now, that is the Sufi way. I don't know if you believe in that kind of God, but um, that's good enough for me. So I don't know that I would touch that genie bottle. That's fair. (laughs) That's a great answer. I like that. So now is your turn to ask my next guest a question. Uh, Do I get to know anything about them? Not at all. And that's the beauty of it is it can no sway. If you could do something different with your life, what would it be? That's a great question. I'm excited to get the answer. So, where can we find you and the festival on social media? Wow, we're all over because I have some great social media mavens. I don't know how to do it. Somebody emailed me today and said, did you see what had something about Facebook? I said, I don't know how to use Facebook. Okay, that's way <laughs> after my time. When I was in, in, in elementary, middle, and high school, we were three years before computers. Okay. So, I didn't even use a computer until I was sort of out of college. Sure. Um, so that stuff is beyond me. But we have on DixonPlace.org, we have the human rights, the whole human rights festivals laid out there. We have a great Facebook page where um, my assistant producer is posting stuff and videos and information about uh, the, the, uh, the program every day. And that's uh, Human Rights Art Festival. Um, our Twitter, I think, is HRFest. It's all, if you go onto the website, it's all listed at the bottom. Great. But I don't know all the handles we'll we'll get them out there there you go um so if you have gotten to the end of this podcast make sure you let us know by using hashtag block on block talk uh and again the international human rights arts festival is march 3rd through 5th you can find out more on dixonplace.org thank you for talking with me thank you michael enjoyed it thanks again to tom for joining me don't forget to visit our patreon page for information on becoming a patron And if you have any questions or comments, drop me a line at theaterinthenow.com via our question link. Until next time, I'm Michael Block, and that was Block Talk. Mm